Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for CEO Exclusive, brought to you by Anona Enterprises. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to CEO Exclusive, where we get emerging trends from CEOs and their most trusted advisors. And today, I am delighted to have on the show Jeff Hillemeyer and Ryan Tuttle, CEO and COO of Dragon Army. We're going to talk a little bit about some very innovative, cutting-edge technology today. And let's start off by asking these gentlemen to tell us a little bit about their company. So, uh, Jeff and Ryan, you want to take that? Sure, yeah. Thanks for having us. This is really fun. Um, So Dragon Army is a mobile experience company. And what that means is we build mobile experiences, um, whether that's a mobile app, mobile website, virtual reality, both for ourselves in our own studio and then for clients. So we have an agency side of the business that we work with, Coca-Cola, Home Depot. And then we have our own studio where we build apps and games and launch them into the market. Great. So what are some, I mean, that to me just sounds like all innovative and all trend trending, but what are the trends that you think are most relevant to, to CEOs um, who might be listening to the show? Go for yeah, it, Ryan. Yeah. Um, so I'm a CEO, so I know nothing about trends for CES. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I, I think, um, I think we, in, in, in running a company, not just because we run a technology company, but I think um, CEOs are really going to have to pay attention to technology trends. We've kind of looked at the idea of like emerging merging technologies and how the next generation of employees are going to utilize them, integrate them into the workforce. And I think if you're not paying attention to that, you're going to miss out on a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Jeff and I have been doing digital marketing technology companies for about almost 20 years now. Uh, I've told a lot of people that I've seen the first, the last five years have been different than the first 15 years Mm. in the way that our employees communicate and the technologies they use and the expectations they have. And some of it's a generational thing. And most of your employees in the millennial generation? um, I I would say um, most most employees in this sort of industry are in the millennial generation Mm -hmm. now. We have a a couple of uh, senior guys that help lead the pack, but I would say most most people that we run into in this industry are, are millennials right now. Mm-hmm. And they just um, operate in a different way than than we do as, as the old guys, even though we're not Y'all, that, y'all that are old. not old. Y'all are not old. Uh, so what are some of the technologies you think are going to be in the, in the workforce and in the workplace that are worthy of note? Sure. Well, I I already think like there's been a huge shift in just social, obviously, but the way that um, in which people communicate, even though we're all in the same office, we're all here in Atlanta. It's not unusual for all of us to be working from home. The way we communicate in real time and are expected to communicate through different channels. Um, I've joked with my wife that uh, Jeff's one of the few people who I connect with on four different channels on my phone. Mm. And it's it's a really a strange phenomenon, but those different uh, messages he might send me may pop up in the same way on my phone, but there are four distinct channels that we will talk about different things. And sometimes I'm having two different conversations with him in two different channels. You mean like WhatsApp versus messaging versus email versus correct, phone? Correct. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's uh, in, in Slack. Slack is a big one mm-hmm. that um, we've been using it for a while now. It's only been out a couple of years, but 
I've heard about I've heard about Slack. So tell for listeners who may not be familiar with that one. What, what you, is that? You wanna, you sure. Yeah. Slack. So Slack is interestingly uh, the <clears throat> fastest growing company of all time. Mm-hmm. It's kind of this crazy phenomenon. Um, if you think about the old message boards that we used to have, it's it's really just a, a better version of that. And I think the world was just ready for it. So we do anything from um, communicate general announcements to the company to um, in, in Slack, you can set up channels by project, uh, by trend. And so people will communicate there. To me, the, the big time saver it's been is on email. So you send it out an email and you have to try to decide, all right, who do I copy on this thing? And half the people don't want to be copied. And then you forget two people that did. In Slack, you have a channel for that conversation and anyone can join it. And so suddenly it's letting people participate in the conversation, not be forced into it or left out. Um, and then it just sort of declogs your email, which we all stu- suffer with. So Slack, I like to say our company runs on Slack. Mm, great. And so certainly the communications and the plethora of channels through which people communicate, we need to pay attention to. But you mentioned virtual reality, Jeff. Tell us about how and whether you think virtual reality reality is something that has some business implications. Yeah, I, I'll, um, I'll, I'll do a little. And then Ryan really heads up um, sort of that emerging trend for us because mm. um, he's been interested in it since uh, it's probably even five to eight years since he's been talking to me about virtual reality. And now it's starting to come about. Um, I think that the, the thing that um, I would recommend is that um, people are more open to the idea. So, so right now people say, OK, well, there's goggles and, and nobody wants to put on goggles. And so therefore it's not going to be a thing. But if you if you extract sort of the mechanics of it, and you say, is there a place for a virtual experience? Um, is there a place for people to be able to participate or experience something not being there? Well, that is something that we, I think we can all agree is an interesting phenomenon. So I think the technology can improve. Um, I don't think right now everyone's going to have headsets. Um, but what we've seen is, interestingly, that virtual reality in the B2B and sort of internal space is, is more prevalent than, and than the external. So as an example, we work with um, Coca-Cola on a virtual reality app that helps their salespeople sell to their clients, mm. not to consumers, but to other businesses. Whereas in the, in the sort of consumer space, you really only see virtual reality in gaming right now. And so tell us about how that virtual reality is used to sell. What does that look like? Yeah, so in this sorry specific example, Coca-Cola needed to to find a new way to sell their digital um, billboards. So they have actual physical billboards in their digital displays. So um, they would meet with potential customers and, and show them a PDF of that billboard and say, here's what it, your ad would look like. And the questions that the customer would always ask is, you know, what's next door? What's the traffic pattern like? Is there a liquor store next door? I don't want my ad next to that. And so they kept having to sort of describe the scene. So we were able to create a virtual uh, reality experience where they could hand the customer a headset, they can put it on, and then they can be on the ground level, look up, see the billboard, but then look left, right, see what's around the place. Is there a tree that's blocking it, whatever. So in that example, it actually helped Coke sell better It's not something that they're mass producing. It's something they literally walk into a meeting with. So the barrier of, do I have to download a, you know, new software on my phone? Do I have to buy a headset? So that's gone and actually helps them sell better. And are you seeing any other applications other than like, you know, the, the presentation, like people presenting or what are the applications for which you think it would be most useful? Sure. So in, like in product sales, I think is one area where, um, if you wanted to, we, we talked to one client that um, was going to a trade show and they're selling consumer products, but they're selling them to the um, buying managers at some of the big 
big box stores, the, mm -hmm. the Targets, the Walmarts, whatever. If you're trying to explain in a short amount of time, five minutes that you have with the seller, um, how your suite of products works, what's unique about them and things like that. Um, we talked about the idea of putting them in a, a virtual environment where they're solely focused on these virtual objects. In a 3D environment, they can uh, turn the objects around, uh, even take them apart perhaps, and do things with these virtual objects that you really couldn't do unless you brought a, a, a whole, you know, a whole crate of products right. for somebody to see and play with, which they might not. You could actually give them an experience where they're sort of virtually going through your inventory in a quick way and getting more of a um, immersive experience than if you just gave them a, a catalog that had a few specs or something like that. Um, it'd be very easy also to just switch over that virtual environment to uh, 3D, 360 video of a person using the product. So if it's um, if it's something like a, a curling iron, somebody Which might, I don't need. <laughs> so, somebody, somebody might be um, looking at the looking at it, turn around in 360, and then pressing a button, and then all of a sudden they're in a uh, salon and seeing people actually use it on customers. Yeah, th and think about like home sales. So you know you go through the process of setting up with your real estate agent a day of looking at houses, and typically you walk in and you immediately know this isn't right for That's us. That's a very cool application. Right? Mm -hmm. Put on a headset and you can go through you know a hundred in an hour and quickly quickly get to the point. Um, I was also talking recently to a travel company that was talking about like as people go to specifically like other countries, right? They don't necessarily know what's going to be there when they when they land, how to get into the city, what they need to see. But or imagine what the hotel is going to be like. The hotel, mm -hmm. all that stuff, right? So if you imagine if you're flying, you're a captive audience. You could put on a headset and actually see, okay, here's London. And okay, wow, this is where I would walk through to get to Big Ben and stuff. And so that by the time you land, you're sort of prepared for that. So I think there's, I think it's coming and I think it's going to be really exciting. Um, I love to hear Ryan talk about contact lenses. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I was thinking about the, the sort of... Um, when we talked about the workforce and how that's going to change, I do think VR and augmented reality are going to be part of a regular workforce in, in not too many years. Mm. Um, Jeff mentioned contacts. They've actually had prototypes for contact lenses with LED um, displays in them for years, and they're just slowly perfecting them. And when that gets perfected and people are wearing those on their eyes all the time, um, augmented reality is going to be here and in every aspect of your life for 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 everybody and there for, is going to be a comfort level thing but sure for listeners who don't know the difference what's the difference between virtual reality and augmented reality sure and and it's it's sort of a subtle distinction but typically augmented reality is when you're looking at something in your the environment you're actually in the computer is generating new information about it so if i hold up a coffee cup that doesn't have a label on it and all of a sudden the the computer puts a label on it I'm looking up at the sky and the computer shows me a readout, sort of RoboCop style of what the weather report's going to be. That would be augmented reality. Virtual reality is more of a complete virtual environment. So all of a sudden I put on goggles and I'm in space or I'm at the top of a mountain, even though I may be sitting on my couch. There, there are sort of blends between the two. But those are sort of the the maybe the common distinctions. Between that, the two. So like I think augmented reality personally is more interesting from a 
just general adoption standpoint. So imagine you walk into a networking event and you're wearing these contacts or glasses or something and you look around and you can like, a you know, the people who you're wow, connected that LinkedIn, to. Wow, their LinkedIn profile LinkedIn. comes up and exactly. gives me their like yeah. stuff. So I'm not like, yeah. oh God, who or is this person? so birthday. birthday. Yeah. You yeah. know, it just, it, you know, that's <laughs> an easily, you know, to, to see. Same thing with food, like you're ordering and you can see calories and stuff. It's just, to me, that gets really interesting. Virtual realities maybe more powerful, but I think it's 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 going to be less like a part of our society day to day than augmented is. Yeah. And, and there's a um, there's an interesting video and I, I can't remember the name of it that's being passed around social media that shows a um, like a artist interpretation of what the future may look like with augmented reality. And one of the, the cool aspects I think they came out with is um, this lady's walking through a grocery store and she picks up a package of yogurt and the yogurt is um, the the label she has on some augmented reality glasses, contact lenses, you can't tell because you're looking through her perspective. She picks up the yogurt and the packaging is pink. And all of a sudden there's a glitch in her augmented reality and it changes to like this camouflage packaging because the augmented reality, the, the virus in her computer or whatever thought she was male instead of female. And then all of a sudden it shuts off and you realize the package is really just blank the whole time. So the augmented reality was showing the user what the package should yeah. look like to them from their perspective in order to sell the most yogurt. To me, that's so fascinating because why do we have packaging? It's to sell to people, right. but, but it's you have to create it once and anyone who walks up, you know, a 90-year-old guy or a 15-year-old girl sees the same packaging. Well, why should they? Why shouldn't they see exactly what is, you know, best for them or what they're interested in? So, right. well, A couple of questions come to mind immediately. I'd love for you to wax poetic on this. First of all, and I can't remember the name of the movie, but there was this movie where the woman had like her cell phone embedded in her hand um, you know, that kind of, you know, that image of the contact lenses, mm -hmm. you know, being on somebody's eyes, um, you know, how likely are the, I don't know what it's called. It's bio something. I can't remember the, for the technological phrase, forgive me listeners. Um, but that where the, the computers and the, um, technology is embedded in the body. I mean, do you think that people will adopt that? Cause to me, that kind of is tripping my freak out meter a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, right. Because Google already has enough information right, on yeah, me. Yeah. The last thing I want is Google on my irises, you know, like. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you, one of my. You've been drinking too much coffee, mm. so you, you know. <laughs> uh, I, I definitely have a lot of opinions on this and go in many directions with it. I, I do think current virtual reality, uh, um, a barrier is comfort. So the more comfortable the goggles get, the more people are adopting it. Contact lens will be a thing, but they'll they will get to a point where um, some people want to wear it, some people won't. I think we'll absolutely get to a point where people are embedding artificial parts, chips, or whatever in themselves. It sounds scary for us right now, but another theory I have uh, around just looking at the next generation of the workforce and my kids and everything else, and looking at social media, I think it's going to be more normal for the generations coming that information is more readily available, their sense of things like uh, privacy, privacy, mm -hmm. they may have a completely different concept of privacy than we have. And the same thing, so the, so the idea of them sharing information or being um, scared to share information, they'll just assume I can know everything about the other person I want to, so what really is privacy? I think the same sort of ideas are going to apply to all technology. It sounds really weird for us to embed a chip in our arm, but in 20 years, maybe less, d definitely in the next 50 years, that'll be pretty pretty normal. And you'll feel um, left out. At some point in time, you'll feel left out if you're not augmented. And then at some point in time, it'll be, 
I, I can imagine a hundred years from now that uh, people will be you, embedding chips in their embryos. Yeah, or, or you, yeah, you, you'll be a, you'll be wow. considered a bad parent if you're not giving your child augmentation because they're falling behind everybody else. Um, I, I don't want to get into this because this could really go off on a tangent, but um, there's a lot of talk around artificial intelligence and how we're going to get closer and closer to super artificial intelligence. But um, the idea of... Which is super artificial intelligence being... Essentially, when artificial intelligence is smarter than humans, Hmm. very quickly after it gets smarter than humans, it gets... um, uh, Very quickly after it gets smarter than humans... Is this the singularity that people talk about sometimes? uh, uh, Well, yeah, it could... uh, I've heard it in that context, and it could get so smart that it's you know, it it uh, controls everything. But but basically, super artificial intelligence would be any intelligence that's smarter than humans. And then once it's smarter than humans, it can get infinitely smarter than humans, mm-hmm. and it gets so intelligent that we can't even right. understand the things that it, it starts has. to realize it doesn't need humans. Right? Like, what, why do we have humans, and why are they distracting us? Which is which is funny because it sounds like a science fiction movie, but there's a lot of truth and the progression of it but but there's going to be some point in time where the computers know so much more than we know the only way for us to catch up in a reasonable amount of time is to is embed just, them in ourselves right right to augment yeah. them with ourselves so. I, I look at the smartwatches, which both ryan and i are wearing that you know that's a bridge to that that's you know we're trying to make it so that we don't have to pull out our phone to see who's in the room or or to be alerted to where we're at you know all these things take little steps and little steps so um, I, I think young people, it would be interesting to ask like a 14 year old or 15 year old, would they be interested in having something embedded in them that allows them to always check, you know, Instagram or something and just to see what they would say. Cause, um, I don't think we're actually 20 years away. I think it'll be much faster. Mm. So that brings me to the, the next question I wanted to eat a wax poetic on, which was if this is all the case, why did the Google glasses fail? Cause my understanding is this was, this is what that was supposed to be. Correct. Yeah. Too, pro- probably too soon. I mean, I mean, yeah. a lot of new technologies get introduced to the market too soon, and and Google's good about throwing something out there, letting it fail. But they've now sort of conditioned people that it's possible. It's possible, but also the idea like that was the worst case scenario. It's the next iteration is only going to be better, and so Google glasses were expensive, uncomfortable, and didn't do enough. Right. And so then they came, they went the opposite way, and they came out with Google Cardboard, which is super <laughs> super cheap. Does a lot of things, but still not quite the comfort level. Cardboard, Google Cardboard, yes. You familiar with it? No. Okay, so Google Cardboard is um, basically a set of like it's like fifteen dollars worth of cardboard, or they'll give you the instructions for free, and it tells you how to construct essentially goggles out of cardboard and two lenses. You stick your phone in it, and all of a sudden you have a virtual reality headset for your phone plus $15 with cardboard, you have a virtual reality headset. It's not the greatest user experience, but it all of a sudden gives you a wealth of information. Um, if you're using the camera of your phone, you can do augmented reality sort of like Google Glasses. Now, people aren't going to ride around on their bikes like that, but you uh, it's, it's like a stepping stone. Mm-hmm. And now they've just announced recently the new... Um, their new version of that that's kind of an upgraded virtual reality experience using your phone. So... Now that they're making everyone's cell phones into tiny virtual reality machines, it's the next stepping stone and sort of the pervasiveness of the technology. So, I, so that's why um, I recently wrote a blog post about how this year is a big year for VR, not only because of Google doubling down on it, Samsung getting more mature in it, but Oculus, um, 
Steam, uh, Sony, PlayStation, they're all launching their consumer-grade VR headsets this year. So this is sort of the year zero, I think. Next year's going to be huge, and then it's just going to escalate from there. All right. So as an aside to bring it back <laughs> to the business applications, one thing that it seems like it would be immediately relevant for would be meetings. And people, mm-hmm. you know, companies spend a lot of money on meetings and flying people places and things like that. Are you seeing any of the virtual reality or augmented reality just for the day-to-day conference call, like, you know, so that um, they can make sure that somebody isn't, you know, either surfing the internet, <laughs> reading the times, or mm-hmm. you're playing solitaire while they're supposed to be paying attention on a conference call? I, I have not seen that yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have certainly heard it talked about as far as meetings and stuff, but I think for some reason, companies are still getting comfortable with just video conference calling. It's it's usually a hard thing to set up and get going. And then it's, you know, people are, you know, breaking in and out. So I actually don't know that the technology is there just on the base level to be effective with VR as well. But I don't know if you've seen anything like that, Ryan. Um, no, I don't think, again, I don't think it's uh, pervasive enough or, or even convenient enough because everybody has to have goggles and things like that. But we are starting to see the first inklings of it in... Um, uh, for instance, uh, on the Oculus Store, on uh, the Samsung Gear, and and I think the other, I think on the Rift as well. There's there is an app where people can all meet together virtually, all have their own screens. So you can look at your you can be in this cafe or whatever the setting it doesn't matter what the setting is. It could be the moon. You have an avatar and you have a screen of what's actually on your computer, and they have a screen of what's on their computer. So you can look at your monitor or you can lean over look at theirs. And you can kind of share information that way. Uh, so that's sort of the the predecessor, I think, to having virtual conference. Because you will have, especially like in manufacturing or something like that, if you had to, to uh, discuss a 3D object, something like that, where you could actually put 3D object on the table and both people can see it and get different perspectives of it, but they may be on different sides of the country. We're going to start to see more and more of that. Wonderful. Well, that's really, really fascinating. Um, and I appreciate you sharing with, the, uh, with us all that cutting edge um, technology and information. But I want to turn us to the, the second part of the conversation um, where we discuss how you work together, how you mm-hmm. met each other, and how you're building a great company. Jeff, tell me a little bit about how you and Ryan came together and started building the company. Yeah, so my first company was called SpunLogic. I started it in the dorm room at UNC Charlotte. Um, and uh, I think it must have been... Year five, maybe four or five, we had a dozen people. Um, and I, I interviewed Ryan for, I think it was a project management job yeah. at the time. Yeah. And uh, luckily he said yes. So, so we, we hired Ryan as a project manager. And then I quickly started to realize that, um, so at, at that point, our business started to grow. So for, for the next five years, we doubled every year in size and eventually got to 75 people and, and sold the company. Along that route, um, Ryan kept sort of rising in the company and eventually became my COO um, because he was sort of, you know, a great compliment to the things that I did. And so he, you know, we've, I like to think we've been through the war, like we've been through a company that grew really fast and then we had an acquisition. So then we sold and then there was a merger and we went through all that together. And so what I, what I look for in, in employees is people who can rise and sort of continue to grow with the company. And, and that's really what Ryan did all, all the way. Mm-hmm. And Ryan, for your part, you know, you stayed, right? Yeah. You stayed and, you know, <laughs> tell, tell us a little bit about the, the growth and the growth trajectory from your perspective, going through one company acquisition, exit, all that good stuff, and then starting the second one. 
Sure. Well, um, de- definitely been a journey, and you get to see a lot of different uh, scenarios, good and bad. And uh, it's always been important for me to sort of for us to learn from it and figure out how to further complement each other. I think what happens with us is that um, you, we start to get in a pattern where we're actually getting at complementing each other at the more time that passes and the more situations we go through. And we might come up on a new situation that neither one of us have experience in, but we sort of figure out what's naturally the best way for the two of us to tackle that mm-hmm. same problem. And I think that's that's part of it. And I, I've, uh, um, I have been now, <laughs> I think I've been in like seven or eight companies and uh, Jeff's been in two and a half. <laughs> I mean, one, one that changed in a couple of different mm-hmm. companies. And so, so I've actually got to see a lot of different sort of CEO styles. I think some uh, I've seen that have sort of embraced their role in the company and then some that try to take on too much that usually does not lead to success because they're trying to do everything, especially um, ones that started from two people and they grow it to a hundred people and they're still trying to do the same work that they did when it was only two people. Their skill set is they're not embracing their true skill set and they're, they're not able to scale, scale well because they're, they're not, they feel like they have to control everything and not knowing what, to pass off and how to get somebody to compliment them. Mm-hmm. Now tell me, what do you think is the CEO's role in a company? I think that's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I really think, so it definitely depends on the the company. So I can really only speak to smaller technology, like under 100 technology companies. And, and now I've been in one from uh, three people to 100 people, uh, all different sizes in between. I do think that they should sort of embrace their full skill set. Some are going to be more um, better at sort of the vision casting and leading the charge and um, setting sort of the goals and everything else. Um, that sort of leadership role, uh, getting on the podium, getting the troops <laughs> uh, following in the same direction. I think that's hugely important. The the thing, I think the book, I think it was good to great, mm-hmm. um, that they always talked about like one common theme in all the successful companies was common purpose. And it didn't even matter if it was a good purpose or a bad purpose. Um, if they had a common purpose, they were usually successful. And so, like, a CEO needs to get everybody rowing in the same direction. That kind of creates a successful company. So I think, w- without a doubt, that's going to apply all the way down the board, all the, across the board, no matter what the industry is. And then there's some subtle differences in, in um, you know, is yours an industry where you need to sell more, or you need to look for efficiencies more or, or things like that. So you haven't asked me what a COO does, but that's what I think a CEO does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so, Jeff, as you think about your role, I mean, how did you or do you think about the growth, right? So it, it is a big transition. And I think I spoke with a, a VC fund manager at one point, and she told me that typically only 5% of CEOs are able to make that transition, right? They're, most people wash out, as you were saying, um, Ryan. Like, how, how did you or how do you think about transitioning through the various stages of growth of the companies you've had? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I'm growth-oriented. Like, I'm wired for growth. And I think that's an important part of it. Um, my path and, and where I want to take the company is always rooted in a growth goal. Some CEOs are, are more... Um, you know, they want to build a lifestyle business and, and so then growth is hard for them. 
I think, you know, what I feel like my, my goal is to set the vision and then bring in the right people to help us execute that vision and then really step away and empower those people to help us, you know, get there. And then along the way, course correct. And a big part of that is that second part of the right people is that changes over time and, and getting people in the right place at different stages of growth is probably the most important part and recognizing when someone can step up and when they maybe need to stay at the role they're at. There's a principle called the Peter principle, which basically says people are promoted until they're inefficient at their job. So you take a developer who's good and you go, okay, you're going to be a system architect now and you're going to architect stuff and they're good at that. And you say, okay, now you're going to manage all the developers and they keep going until they're bad at that job. And then suddenly you took a great overperformer and now they're not good at their job. And probably you're not going to get rid of them because you're constantly going, well, yeah, but they were so good. <laughs> so I think part of you know the CEO's role is to set that vision, but then keep making sure we have the right people in the, in the right place and not micromanage them and, and empower them to, to bring us there. And so for both of you, I would love to know how you've gone about hiring so many good people so quickly. And what's your philosophy and how you manage that process? Because, I mean, obviously you have to have the right the right hundred people, right? Sure. You don't want the wrong hundred people. Yeah. How does that work? Um, I'll, I'll start. And then um, Ryan really handles the recruiting process and, and the vetting process of people. But I think what's important is that if, if you have a strong set of values and you know who you are, that then you can scale much more quickly. So at Dragon Army, our, our three values are team first, think positively, and have fun. All right, so team first. So when we're interviewing people and looking for people, are they are they talking about I did this and I did this, or my team did this, we did this, right? Um, think positively. Like, we, I don't want a bunch of bummers around the office because they'll suck everybody down. So, you know, are they positive or are they just crapping all over the company they're trying to get out of? Um, and so, is and everybody, we, we, I reiterate those at every company meeting, every chance I get so that anytime people are interviewing, they're always looking through that lens. So to me, you, you can sort of teach skills, but you can't teach sort of the way someone acts and the way they treat other people. So that's the baseline that, that I have. And then, um, you know, Ryan has a pretty sophisticated recruiting process where Ooh. we're always, we're always interviewing <laughs> whether, yeah. whether or not we're, actually hiring, we're always interviewing because we want to have a stable of people that are excited to come and we're excited for them to come. So, All right. Yeah. Tell us about your sophisticated recruiting oh, process, gosh. Ryan. Let me, well, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you some, uh, some sort of highlight principles of what we do that I think maybe some other companies miss. We, we have always, for years, have always talked about core skills. We ask a lot of interview questions around to, to try to determine if they're a hard worker, if they're loyal, if they're honest, things like that. Because again, sort of Jeff's point, it's we can't train that. And usually if they're a smart, hardworking person who enjoys their job, they're going to learn a lot of the technical skills. You still have to get enough technical skills to perform the task and everything else. But those, when we have hired people who we were shaky on whether they had those core skills, they usually ended mm -hmm. up failing. So, so that, that is big. And then culture is huge. Because you spend, I mean, you know, there's a lot of stats that'll say you'll you'll spend more time with your coworkers than your spouse or something like that. You're with these people eight hours a day for most of your week. If they're a bad cultural fit, even if they're a great person and they have all the skills you need, over time it's gonna it's gonna come out. Mm -hmm. So uh, looking for those things, and then also knowing sort of the the balance between, um, you know, when you err on one. Uh, side or the other and how that fits into the, how it fits into the mix of your your group of people so maybe we need somebody who's a little bit better at core skills slightly less cultural fit or maybe now's the time like we definitely need culture fit and have them 
and and that's sort of a that that's more of a a, a nuance and a gut check. The 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 last the, I'll say the last core principle I have is we want to make sure that uh, everybody loves Dragon Army. So whether if we're interviewing you, whether we know we want you or not, we want you to want the job no matter what. We want you to if we turn you down, we want you to be like, tell me the next time something's open. And they tell their friends about it and things like that. And we, we've been successful over the years in the various companies of one of the greatest things I've ever heard is somebody came to us and they said, yeah, so-and-so recommended I work here. Was this a great company? And that person who recommended our company, their only experience with us was us turning them down for a job. And so if you, if somebody you turn down for a job is willing to vouch for you and say, you're an awesome company, you did a good job in making them feel welcome selling the company and everything else. And I think the person should be selling themselves on you whether they want the job or not. So it should be both parties kind of uh, uh, telling each other why they should be a good fit. Mm-hmm. So. And and how do you accomplish that? Like making the experience of interviewing and recruiting so positive that people will go out and, and evangelize for you even though they haven't gotten the job? Yeah, um, uh, there's just a couple of different techniques. I mean, we, we're pretty careful on, on who we... We try to get as, as many people involved in the interview process as possible without taking too much of our staff's time and without uh, we, we don't want to abuse the time of the candidate. We don't want to we don't want to be one of those companies that takes you through five interviews and then tells you you don't, you don't get the job. Uh, so we're pretty selective about who they meet with so that they um, they get good um, sort of sort of a cross sample of what the company's like. We spend a lot of time in the interview process trying to get them to. Um, break out of their resume. I mean, it's really a lot of people come in and they are, want to walk you through their resume and talk about why they're so technically great. And I found after interviewing hundreds of people that um, I can get a lot more in some conversational questions about who they are. And then, and then when I'm ready to ask technical questions, it's a lot more friendlier. The guards down, they give me more honest answers and things like that. And then pretty quickly in the interview, you know, if you make a connection process. Uh, where you may not have, like if I, for instance, if I ask somebody what their favorite TV show is and we watch the same TV show, the walls in the interview come down immediately. And then when I ask them about their technical skills, they're a lot less defensive. They're a lot less arrogant or anything else are willing to share with me because we've already had some sort of Rapport. connection. Yeah. The, the other thing I'll say is by hiring and only allowing like good people to be in the company, every experience and touch point that they have is going to be with a really good person to a hang positive, out with. positive, fun person. Yeah, exactly. Right, and right. if you keep that sort of constraint, that's what's going to happen. And same thing with clients. Like our clients love us. We do absolutely do great work, but it's the people they work with and they, they fall in love with their account person or their strategy person because they're a good person. They're a good, solid person. And if you, you know, I, I think our culture is now to the point where it would reject people who aren't. And so anyone who comes in, they're going to just run into person after person who's positive and upbeat and excited to meet them. It, uh, I would also say, this is making me think, I think it's especially in the technology services industry. So you're doing a, techno- a technical service for somebody else. I think people don't appreciate enough how much personalities count. A reason I found for that is that um, usually we're selling to somebody who's less technical than us, and there's a natural fear factor. It's almost like somebody who's um, not in the medical industry that has a medical problem. They, they're, they're scared of the things they don't know. So somebody comes to us and they're not, they're not as technical. That um, personal experience really bridges the gap and eases that fear of 
technology. Yeah, I don't know what augmented reality is. Right. So, so if, if, you feel, if you feel comfortable with the person explaining augmented reality, to you, for instance, there's a trust, stress levels are down, everything else. So technology companies who are just hiring sl- uh, solely based on skills and not that sort of bedside manner, when they deal with clients, all of a sudden, if you get somebody who's very <laughs> closed off, quiet, and not communicating everything that's going on, it's very intimidating. So if you have somebody who's personable and is communicating all the things, you're a little less paranoid about, are they, or do they understand what I'm saying? Are they messing up my product? Is, are they going to miss the deadlines? Everything like that. All, it, it sort of eases everything from that standpoint. Hmm. And do you test for the technical skills just to get that out of the way? Because I imagine a lot of the technical stuff, you can just create an assessment that would test whether or not people can do what you need them to do. Yeah, um, with, depending on the type of positions, because we, we have positions that range from very super technical engineers, more to um, organizational uh, type of roles. So depending on the the level, we we will do some tests, especially if we have any concerns with the candidate or if, um, you, you know, we don't have a strong reference, a way to check a reference of their performance in the past or something like that. The, yeah, and the trend that's happening in development now is that the the best developers will be sharing their code online anyway for other people to use and absorb. So usually people who come in, um, that's an indicator, A, that they're sort of sharing people and that they're in this for a bigger purpose. But you, you can usually look at that and our guys will go into their GitHub, which is where they can store code and look and go, okay, yeah, they're solid or get a sense of it. So most developers now are very comfortable doing that. And so you can get a good handle on them without having to do a test sometimes. Great, 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 great. Well, this has been a great interview. Thanks a lot for coming. And I'm wondering if there, you know, this, what's new at Dragon Army, uh, Dragon Army that uh, listeners may want to be aware of and that you want to let them know? Yeah, well, um, certainly if people are just learning about us now, um, they should check out our last game, which went in the App Store in January. It's called Little Broken Robots. Um, It's just Apple. So unfortunately, we didn't do an Android version. Um, But it was voted by Apple as one of the best games of January. So we're pretty, pretty proud of that. So that came out of the studio side. Um, and then I think, you know, what's exciting to us on the agency side, working with clients, that's not as sexy as all the stuff we just talked about. But most companies right now are still struggling with how do they connect with their customers via mobile? Like, what does that look like? It's a scary thing to start interacting with customers on mobile because it's the most intimate device they have, right? And so we Until it gets embedded in their hand. (laughs) That's what we're waiting for. (laughs) So we spend a lot of time with our customers, like today, road mapping out, okay, here's a 12-month, 18-month strategy in mobile. And we'll start small. So again, it you don't get to the the virtual reality stuff until later in the process because there's some blocking and tackling. But we get really excited when a client has that mature of a vision of mobile that we can sit down with them and really roadmap that out. And if uh, listeners want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Um, DragonArmy.com is the the easiest way. We're also Dragon Army on Twitter, Dragon Army apps on Instagram. Yep. And then um, I, I have my own blog. It's um, mm-hmm. and where I blog about Dragon Army quite a bit. And then about just general entrepreneurial stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, Ryan, I think you mentioned a blog also? Um, uh, the Dragon Army blog. So Dragon Army has its own blog that um, I encourage everybody to read because we're usually, any new technology find we have or mobile innovation or um, things that we're learning along the way, we tend to post. So, Wonderful. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks a lot for being here. Great show. Thanks for having thanks. us. This show is brought to you by Anona Enterprises, where strategy is your access to money and performance. Learn more at anonaenterprises.com.